Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your host, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I am delighted to be joined by David Bacon. He is the author of Illegal People, How Globalization Creates Migration and Criminalizes Immigrants. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. It's a pleasure to be with you, Sylvia. In your work, I mean, for many decades now, you have been documenting the connections between labor and migration and how the global economy not only harms because of the people we call illegal who, you know, seem to be the invisible livers of our economy. How has this year of pandemic impacted or perhaps farther compromised the conditions under which uh, labor takes place? People who um, were referring to Sylvia when we use the word illegal are, first of all, um, migrants. So the term illegal is kind of like a um, derogatory way of referring to the fact that people all over the world are being displaced by uh, neoliberal economic reforms, by basically what what we would call, if we want to use a, a real term for it, imperialism is the relationship between um, rich, powerful countries that were the colonizers of the world and the countries that were previously colonized. So as a result of all of this history, over, what, 200 years of history, more really, uh, people in the developing world are being forced to leave their homes um, because of the economic changes that have taken place there, making it really impossible for people to survive. And we can talk about some examples of that um, if you want. But also, I think it's important to note that the wars that are taking place, you know, the wars that took place in Central America, the um, the civil wars in El Salvador and Guatemala, or the wars taking place in the Middle East, are um, part of the legacy of colonialism. What we're seeing when we see people dying in the Mediterranean, trying to cross the Mediterranean in those rickety boats, trying to get to Western Europe, both fleeing wars, but also looking for economic survival. And of course, we see that in the migration of people from Mexico and Central America and the Caribbean um, to the U.S. and Canada, which is essentially produced by the those same forces, and not just those countries. I think also I want to mention especially the Philippines, too, um, because that's very relevant to the United States. After all, the Philippines was a U.S. direct colony for many, many, many years. So people come, whether it's there's a legal avenue for that, or not. So where people can get legal status um, in the countries that they're going to, where people can come to the United States um, and get you know, green cards, permanent residence visas, or can come as um, legal immigrants to Canada, um, people do that. But where there is no legal avenue for that, people come anyway because they have no choice. And so when people are called illegal, um, 
on the surface, it sort of refers to this lack of legal status. But illegality is also a um, a legacy of racism and the way in which the economies of North America were developed. Um, after all, the first people who were illegal in North America were Native peoples, First Nations in Canada, Native peoples in the U.S. and in Mexico as well, too, who were the victims of genocide as European immigrants sought to take the land and exploit it. And then, um, needing labor to do that exploitation, um, developed a system of chattel slavery and become laborers in the plantations, on, um, especially in, um, in the U.S. South. So illegality refers also to this unequal status, the fact that Native peoples were considered not considered human. That was the justification for the genocide. Um, people from Africa were considered, in fact, it was written into the U.S. Constitution when it was first adopted, three-fifths of a person. Um, people were, from Africa were counted as three-fifths so that slave owners could get more representation in Congress. But of course, as three-fifths of a human being, um, what that really meant for people who were subjected to that, um, people were um, not considered really human at all. So illegality kind of goes down through the history of racism in our countries. You know, the way in which Chinese people were treated, the Chinese Exclusion Act um, in the 1880s passed in the United States here, which again um, put Chinese people into this status of people who really had no right to be here, even though their labor was very necessary for everything from the building of railroads to the draining of the Delta and the establishment of agriculture in California, where I live, um, people from India. Um, there was a famous Supreme Court decision in which people from India um, were officially considered not white and therefore ineligible for citizenship in the United States. So all of these are sort of categories of illegality. And, and so when we sort of unpack the word illegal, um, this is sort of the history that we are facing. And so today, you know, I was just... Um, looking at the inauguration of Joe Biden um, as the new president of the United States and thinking about Donald Trump and what he did in terms of the way in which he treated um, those people who were um, coming to the United States. Donald Trump was one of the main enforcers and reinforcers of this illegal status of people. Well, you know, one of the, one of the most important things that, that Trump did was he issued an order when the pandemic started um, here in the U.S. in which he shut down the means by which people have been able to come to the United States legally, what was called the family preference system based on their family relationships. Um, that was shut down. And at the same time, he made an exception for the agriculture industry and continuing, uh, allowing them to continue to bring people to the United States as what are called H-2A workers or guest workers. It's like our equivalent as the Canadian program, the Canadian SAW program, special agricultural workers. 
um, in which here in the U.S., people essentially have no rights and are used as basically cheap labor and then um, told to leave the U.S. after the harvest is over. Um, so, you know, this sort of made it very, very clear that the purpose of, of U.S. immigration policy under Trump was to supply labor to the companies that want it, which is, you know, goes all the way back to the development of plantations and slavery, and at the same time shut down the immigration system that um, made it possible for people to come here based on their family relationships. In other words, looking at people as human beings, as part of our communities, people with families, and so forth. Um, so, you know, this is sort of what people are hoping to end with the end of the Trump administration, or at least looking for some change in that. But, um, you know, we can talk about how much change we can expect here and kind of how difficult it's going to be, because after all, this kind of illegality and this problem of, you know, second class status and the exploitation of labor is built into the U.S. system from the very, very, very bottom of it all the way to the top. We are promised that if we elect a Democrat government, we are going to see some changes and shifts in the way government operates. But for Latin America, you know, the sanctions against Venezuela began with the Obama administration with President Biden as vice president. The coup in Honduras happened under, you know, at the same time that Obama was president and President uh, now President Biden was vice president. And now we are seeing a, a fleet of 7,000 migrants coming from Honduras. So I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, the responsibility of our social movements, you know, people who are connected with labor movements, to see the connections that second-class citizens, whether it's, you would call them temporary visas, temporary workers, uh, whatever name you want to give it, is creating a, a, a multi-layer class of workers, right, where we are competing against each other. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've, what you've experienced, your connection to these struggles and your connection to the stories of these people? starting um, going back to what you um, began your um, your question with or the observations that you made about um, about Central America and Venezuela you know um, Carlos Vecchio who is the uh, representative of um, Juan Guaido the uh, person who the US has sort of anointed as the government of Venezuela in exile was a guest at the inauguration on this morning. And I think that that tells us something about um, where we are going to be at in terms of the um, Biden administration. Um, you point to the fact that, uh, um, that the efforts to uh, the coup attempts against Maduro in Venezuela or in um, in Honduras took place under democratic administrations or centrist democratic administrations. So I think this is kind of what we can expect from the sort of people who Biden has already um, nominated to head the State Department of the National Security Council and so forth. On that being said, though, um, I think that it's also, um, I mean, this is kind of what, this is sort of business as usual in a way for the centrist part of the democratic 
party. I don't think that Biden is betraying his base here. I think that what Biden is doing is what comes you know, natural to um, that section of the Democratic Party. But we have to remember also, though, that there is a whole nother section of people here in the United States who have fought for something that is much more progressive than that. The people who supported Bernie Sanders, the people who have, um, well, we had a long history of solidarity movements in the U.S. in solidarity with the movements in Central America. Um, and when the coup took place in Honduras, um, many people from the U.S. went to Honduras in, a, in an effort to support the left-wing opposition in Honduras as it you know, tried to survive and, and did survive under these um, kind of coup governments. So what happens under a new Biden presidency is going to depend a lot on how organized and vocal um, the opposition is here in the United States. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of the left wing here in the U.S. Um, when Obama was elected for sort of going to sleep to a certain extent, or at least allowing Obama to um, to govern without much pressure on him from the left. You know, I'm not sure that that was entirely justified criticism, but certainly to do that now um, would be, you know, pretty disastrous. So we are seeing, you know, with the caravans, um, you know, the one that started in San Pedro Sula and then was met at the border with Guatemala by um, the armed forces of Guatemala, basically tear gassing and beating people in an effort to sort of like force them back into Honduras. And um, this is all being done at the um, instigation of the U.S. here. Um, which wants the Guatemalan government and Guatemalan military um, to do this. But you can also see that the pressure on people to leave Honduras is um, is as great now as it was um, you know, 10 and 20 years ago. And these continuing efforts of people to come to the United States um, are going to continue. And so what people here in the U.S. do, and I would say this also applies to Canada as well, too, um, what people do in support and in solidarity with people as they are trying to seek their survival, um, well, that's very, that's very important. That's going to, I think, determine what the policy of the Biden administration is. Um, because, you know, we can kind of look at um, who the appointments are, and see that you know the the kind of imperial relationship that the U.S. has with Honduras, for instance, or Guatemala, is you know that's not going to change very much. Um, you know, I think that that there is a enormous pressure on this incoming administration from immigrant rights activists, from immigrant communities, from the labor movement. Um, from people on the left around this around these policies, primarily because of the horrors that took place under Trump, the separation of families, the, incar- the incarceration of children, the deaths of people in detention, um, the for- forcing the creation of these um, refugee camps on the on the Mexican side of the U.S. border to hold people who were being denied 
their um, legitimate right to claim asylum. In the U.S., all of these things, people have fought against these things for four years, and people are expecting a change here. And in fact, you know, Biden has announced that in his first day in office, he is going to put forward um, a much more progressive immigration policy than obviously that we saw under Trump. And, and that's a product, not so much of the goodwill of the Biden administration. I think it's a product of this enormous pressure that Biden is responding to and also trying to show that the new Biden government is going to be something different um, from Trump. Um, so I think that there will be some changes in terms of how refugees are treated. For instance, um, he's already said that he is going to um, get rid of the Trump orders that tried to put an end to the DACA program under which um, young people, undocumented young people, were able to get legal status or temporary um, protective status, which was the way in which refugees from Central America um, were able to get some kind of legal status and ability to stay in the U.S. And those are those are good things, um, without question. Um, and he says also that he's going to tell Congress to pass an immigration bill to um, set up a path for 11 million undocumented people in the United States to get legal status. I think that one is a little bit more problematic because Congress is not about to pass any bill like that, not with the Republicans in you know almost a majority still in the Senate, or at least enough of them to block it. Plus, there are Democrats who don't want this, don't want this either. Um, so, what the larger scale um, changes we're going to see, I think that's going to be a result of struggle. You know, people want legal status. 11 million people need legal status, and there's a lot of support for that. In fact, I would say there's a majority support for that in the United States. Whether or not that can be brought to bear on Congress and the government and what an actual proposal from the Biden administration looks like around that, you know, well, we'll have to see. But again, that's a product of struggle. But the illegal status or the second class status of migrants is deeper here. Um, and it has to do with the continuing um, migration of people out of Central America and Mexico and the Caribbean. As people come here, they're not coming into a situation in which um, people are essentially going to be able to function and have the same status as everybody else in the world around them. People are coming still into a country in which um, people are going to be treated as second class people, both by racism and by, by laws. That still exists. And we also have an economy in the United States that is very heavily dependent not just on immigrant labor, you know, there are 40 million people, at least in the United States, who are working people, people who are part of the economy, who were born somewhere else. Overwhelmingly, the people who have been working during the pandemic, people of color and immigrants, um, partly because the people coming into the U.S. economy in this way um, are working in parts of the economy that are the so-called providers of essential services, whether that means, you know, cutting up cows in a meatpacking plant or working in the fields, you know, picking apples, or whether it means working in hospitals. These are all jobs in which um, people 
um, in which people coming from other countries are concentrated. And so, of course, the death rate from the pandemic is much higher among people who are the so-called essential workers and they are um, among the population as a whole. And that's another another way of looking at inequality or this illegality is to say, is to see who's an essential worker and who's not an essential worker. Um, you know, that's not going to change. It's interesting to see that one of the proposals from the Biden administration is to set up a system under which essential workers can um, get legal status for those who don't have it. And, you know, I interviewed a um, a guy who was a farm worker in New York State and the head of what's called the Alianza Agricola, which is sort of like the first steps that people are making there to form a union for farm workers. And um, he said that, that this was back in March, that, um, that one of the things that he was most angry about and the people that he was working with were most angry about was that they were um, doing work that was absolutely essential for people to be able to eat. And there was even, you know, some sort of lip service that was being paid to that. And yet, um, first of all, people were eliminated from any kind of benefits under the legislation that passed through Congress that gave people, you know, some form of um, economic um, life support, but also that people were not being offered a real status in in this country. In other words, people weren't being offered legal status and people weren't being offered citizenship and the right to have a, an equal status with everybody else around them. So I think that this proposal from the Biden administration to grant um, or to set up a process under which people can get legal status if they're essential workers and undocumented is a recognition of this truth, a recognition of this reality, and in some ways a response um, to the anger that that people have about it and that's good that's good it's but it's not it's not going to erase inequality at one blow but i think it it points to the way in which we are going to eventually be able to um inequality and illegality and that is through struggle and through organizing and through protest and through um demanding change so can you talk a little bit about then how uh no, where where our struggles are most needed right now, like in terms of, you know, our our alliances, because there is there is also a division among workers. You know, I work in a university, and you clearly see how some of my coworkers uh, look down at the cleaners, who are mainly women, female, and usually of women of color. And so, to me, there is both a, a need for decolonizing the ways we see the world. You know, where inequality is just naturalized, where poverty has been normalized, where, you know, this mass um, catastrophe of treating people as objects, you know, has just been, we, we, we look the other way because it, it doesn't affect us. So we look the other way. And then when it comes time to renew our contracts, those of us who have benefits want to go to the streets and get support for our benefits. So to me, it's both recognizing the relational symbiotic uh, relation that we live with. If we don't create safety for migrant workers, we won't have it for ourselves. Well, that's very true. And I think that you're description of life at the university is is very apt. We we live in capitalist countries, not socialist ones, and without getting into a discussion of what socialism is or could be, 
Um, one of the things that capitalism does is that it not only creates classes, you know, a working class versus a, a owning or exploiting class, but even among workers, it stratifies workers. In other words, some workers have it better than others. And um, then the ideology that the system produces constantly is one that tells people who have some privileges that the real and that their real enemies are the ones who have fewer privileges. In other words, somebody's coming for your job. Um, if you have, you know, that they, they did this you know, over the last few years here in the U.S. with a vengeance in terms of public workers, you know, telling workers in general that the, you know, these public workers have, you know, too many, you know, too many benefits. You know, they have their pensions are too generous. They're bankrupting the system. Their wages are too high. You know that the taxes are are high on working people because we have to support these kind of privileged privileged people and of course you know people do buy buy into that you know so, so one of the things that, we, that we've seen that i think is is sort of more hopeful is that when people do struggle how they how they relate to the community around them so you know you say well okay when the people at the university who have good jobs um, find their you know, their wages and their benefits and their positions under attack. They go out to the streets and they call on the community um, for support and to help them. Um, now, those people who are going out to the streets are you know have a history of simply protecting themselves um, and doing that in in denial of the situation of everyone from farm workers to domestic workers to unemployed people to poor people in general, then clearly there's a lot of hypocrisy in that. And also, <laughs> you're not likely to get a lot of support from the community around you if your history is to ignore what people's problems are and just to be concerned about yourself. But I think that in counterposing that, we can sort of see for instance, what teachers in Chicago did or in Los Angeles did, in which they tried to organize the community around them um, for better schools, for a higher school budget that could pay for um, better education for students, you know, against the, um, tr the presence of police inside the schools, um, against the closure of schools in black and brown neighborhoods, so that teachers were um, very important defenders of the welfare of the community, especially the welfare of the community's children. And, you know, teachers unions and teacher union activists, um, you know, they have a saying that sort of goes that, you know, a teacher's working conditions are the student's learning conditions. <laughs> In other words, you know, that that the problems of the schools have an equal impact both on teachers and on students and the, on the community as a whole. So when um, teachers act on that and have that history and then go out on strike as they did in Chicago and as they did in Los Angeles, um, the community is very much in support of that and rallies to people's support. Now, I'm not saying that teachers are, are the world's most highly paid people, but you know, the income of a teacher in Chicago or Los Angeles is higher than that of an unemployed person in Nevada or in the um, or in the ghetto. And the same thing you could see happening among nurses, for instance, in which you have 
um, people who are pretty highly paid as far as the working class goes here in the United States, um, registered nurses who um, try to defend the level of care in hospitals, the amount of staffing, and not only that, who speak out about the social and political issues of the time um, and have a lot of support as a result of that. Well, I think it's also a certain kind of trade unionism, this you know, social movement unionism, you could call it, in which unions kind of locate themselves as being part of a community, a broad community of people, and seek to speak out and represent the interests of that broader community and not simply um, of themselves. Beautiful and amazing work. Thank you so much for all that you do, and thank you for being with us this morning. Well, thank you, Sylvia. You do wonderful work yourself. I appreciate being on your show. Thank you. Take care. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com.